Okay, I'm Nick Bircher, and this is the Nordic Future Makers podcast. Today's Nordic Future Maker is Daniel Goodall, who's Global Director of Brand and Strategic Marketing at Fiskers. Before this, Dan worked with Rovio, the developers of Angry Birds, and prior to this, Dan spent many years at Nokia, where he became one of the pioneers of the paid-owned-earned approach. So, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Nick. So, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do, please? Yes. Uh, so, as you said, I'm currently the Director of Brand and Strategic Marketing at Fiskars Group. Fiskars Group is uh, a company based in, in Finland, in Helsinki in Finland, and named after the Fiskars brand that you mentioned already, but also the uh, group owns a bunch of other brands. So in Finland, Itala and Arabia and Röströnd in Sweden, Royal Copenhagen in Denmark, and then some English brands such as Wedgwood, Waterford, uh, Royal Dalton. And my job now is actually taking care of the brands, essentially the ones not called Fiskars. So I spent five years as the Fiskars brand lead, and now I've switched this year to take care of all those other brands I just mentioned. Okay, and you're based in Finland, so so let's go there first. How did you end up working in the Nordic region? Well, it's a classic story of boy meets girl. So I met my now wife, Soile, at uh, university in Sheffield. She was studying uh, Spanish, which I always found amazing. Someone, a, a, a Finn, studying Spanish in England translating from Spanish to English, not even using her, her native language. But uh, we met there and I was studying law, um, but then I switched to marketing for my master's degree. And then we moved down to Brighton and London, where I worked at American Express for a few years. And she was getting homesick, so we went home uh, to Finland. Um, I visited a few times, uh, liked it, so I thought I'd do a one-year MBA at the School of Economics, now called Aalto University. And my idea was to move back to London after that year, um, but actually ended up staying and uh, getting the job at Nokia that you mentioned earlier. Okay. So how long ago was that? And and where are you based now? So that was 2003 I moved to Finland. Um, And 2004 was the MBA. uh, And that was in Helsinki. And so I'm still in Helsinki. So how long is that? 17 years? Wow. Okay. So you're you're kind of a proper, not like me, you're a proper Nordic uh, Nordic person nowadays. Well, actually, yes. Yeah. So this year I became Finnish. Um, so I'm actually a, a Finnish convert. I, I'm, I can hold on to my British citizenship too, but I passed the, the requirements, which includes a, a language test, which was the, the most challenging part of it because I don't speak Finnish during the day really at all. So um, I had to study separately for that and pass the language test. And now now I've got a Finnish citizenship. And next week, I actually pick up my Finnish passport. Well, congratulations. And and I'm very, very impressed if you have passed the Finnish language test. So um, big, big respect. Yeah. It was a year ago. And I, I have to admit, my Finnish isn't as good as it was even last year. But Nokia is where you started out in your your career in Finland, really. So so can you talk us through fascinating time that you were there? Can you talk us through kind of your your career and some of the things you were doing there, please? Yep, sure. So I joined there in 2004 um, 
worked on a project called the Nokia Life Blog was my first product, um, which was more like a life log, logged all your photos, videos, SMSs, MMSs on your on your PC. And then they did have version 1.5 of that had a, a blogging functionality, which we built in part because we'd call it Nokia Life Blog. This was before <laughs> many people knew even what a blog was, but it was really the first um, first capable phone to or application to upload to the to the internet really um, so people could post photos straight to the internet which now is obviously very common but back in 2004 was was kind of at the cutting edge um, with the the first one megapixel camera that Nokia produced as well that was a big deal back in 2004 so uh, I was a product manager there um, on that product um, got interested in social media because of that actually so got to meet a lot of the early early adopters of blogging and, and social media and that got me interested in in how social media could be used as a marketing tool marketing channel so that led me on to to working in in the marketing team and specializing in uh, the early days of, of social media marketing and, and blogger relations and things like that because I remember I had an N95 back in the day, which is still one of my favorite phones that I've ever had. And yeah, all the things like live streaming and kind of the photos and the video and everything that was going on with it, it, it was an amazing kind of product that was that was there. It really was, yeah. Yeah, I would say the N95 was the first really great smartphone. I really believe that. It, it doesn't have, it didn't have the touch screen that, you know, that, was so important to the iPhone, but it really was a, an amazing piece of kit. And as you said, it, it did all the things that that you could want it to do, from music to good camera to you know live streaming, all those sort of things. But maybe just not the the elite user experience that, that Apple managed to pull off. I suppose was one of the main reasons why it didn't um, succeed quite to the level of, of Apple. But we, but it did very well, and we did some amazing marketing campaigns around that, including this phrase that there's a thing in my pocket it's not one thing it's many <laughs> which was um uh, the whole tv campaign and, and associated digital campaigns around that which uh, kind of spoke to the fact that it was uh, so much more than a than a phone back in the day back in the day one of the things was the key driver of earned and kind of all of these things was the idea of experience customer satisfaction and brand experience and I think if you look at the world now, it's all kind of this word experience seems to be coming back again. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. And I think the customer experience is ultimately what you want people talking about more than you want people just talking about a clever marketing campaign. Of course, it kind of depends on on the, the kinds of products you're selling. Um but um, if you you know if you're Old Spice, it's less about experience as, as it is about people talking about your funny Super Bowl ad, you know. But if you're talking about technology companies or um, you know Airbnb or, or Uber, you really want people talking about the experience of using it and how it's changed their their life and, and getting other people involved in that service. Um, so that's when the sort of almost growth hacking aspects come in. Um, so yeah, so I, I agree with that. You then kind of changed a bit, so and went into Rovio. It was so I spent a few years as a strategist at an agency working for a different brands, um, three years there, and then then joined Rovio. And initially, it was um, trying to 
essentially build the, the strategy for what's called new IP. So what would be the next thing uh, other than, than Angry Birds? So I didn't work directly on Angry Birds. And, and what I realized with the, the, the small team, it's just me and another guy working on this project, was that actually it is very hard to replicate the Angry Birds success in terms of merchandising. And that what the company would better to do is focus on Angry Birds as a sort of a special case and then build games, which it had the capabilities to do, which could make money, um, but not try and look for another Angry Birds. And it's sort of proved true. It's like there's not really been a game that maybe has had the same merchandising success since Angry Birds, even though there's been lots of successful games since then. None of them have become the sort of plush toy you know, T-shirts, caps, everything that was kind of Angry Birds related, for, especially for kids. Um, the movies haven't really come from other games, at least yet, um, uh, at least not from mobile games. So so it was kind of an um, interesting thing to say, well, as much as you, the leadership team wanted to create another Angry Birds, I sort of gave them the, the facts of saying, well, it's very unlikely that that will happen and that we'd be better to make a set of successful games and then if one of them becomes a merchandising success, well, lucky for us, but it is real. It's really luck if that happens. Right. So kind of build a process and a blueprint for how you can have successful games. And then if they jump and become something really big, then then that's a bonus that, exactly. that you kind of capitalize on as and when it happens. Exactly. But you but the problem is that they were looking for the characters first. Um, because they wanted the merchandising success rather than focusing on the mechanics of the games. And actually the games had moved from this um, paid uh, games to free-to-play. And free-to-play games, sure, they can have characters, but uh, it's not actually the primary driver of, of the success of a game. It's much more about the mechanics. Um, so, so yeah, so they, they invested much more heavily in the games um, than in the, the merchandising. And I think that's been a successful strategy for them. I can't take the full credit for that because there are a lot of smart people involved. But, um, but uh, that, was, that was the idea. Even though I was so-called brand director, then it was um, the brands were as successful as the games were, if that makes sense, rather than as successful as the, the Q characters. Um, and then, and, and then I, I actually also took care of the consumer insights team. So we had a team of people surveying people in games um, to work out what, what the responses were, um, how people were you know, enjoying the games. And there's a lot of metrics that go into a game in terms of when people drop out of a game and how long people enjoy a game for. But we were also adding a sort of qualitative aspect to that as well with the surveys, which, um, which I was responsible for. Okay, so it's that thing of focus on the user, focus on the kind of the customer experience, and yeah. then kind of build from that rather than the other way around. Yeah. Okay, and I think that's a whole again that that's a theme that kind of runs through a lot of things at the moment. But it's that whole, on the one hand, how do you make people happy, and then on the other hand, there's that emotional layer to things where it's um, how do you take a product from being functional to emotional. Yeah, and actually, that's a really good segue into to Fiskars, which has been my um, project for the last four or five years. Which it, the Fiskars brand, many people know the scissors, the orange handled scissors, but they're also a major gardening tool company, and in the Nordics, also a major cooking uh, products company, frying pans, etc. So, so very much about tools, um, things that are very highly functional to the point that our 
our side of the company was called the functional business unit. Um, okay. But just to your point that, that what I, I've been aiming at with the, the latest um, efforts is to, to transform it from sort of engineering functionality based marketing to something, something more emotional, something that has a connection to why people do these things, gardening and cooking and um, crafting and creating things. And is that again a whole thing around consumer insights? So understanding the the consumer and and their what their needs and desires are. Yeah. So um, we've been doing some studies. We we're always studying the, the users, and we talk about the enthusiast as being our main target user: um, the gardening enthusiast, the cooking enthusiast, the crafting enthusiast. So we recognize that there were a set of people who are really passionate about this and we've been investigating why they like the certain tools, and why they use certain tools. And, and one day, one of the agencies came up with a, an ad, uh, just a headline. Um, Hassan, the agency, came up with an ad that just said, if someone was in a garden, it said 0% Wi-Fi, 100% happiness. And it was just one headline amongst many, you know. And... As a, as a good strategist, um, I recognize that this is this is actually the insight. This is not just a headline. The reason this headline's magical or interesting compared to the others is because it's based on this thing that we all are sort of realizing, which is that we're spending too long connected to the Internet, connected to our devices. And surely the less time or time away from that is when we're when we're happy, when we're 100 percent happy. So we. Um, we investigated it further and, and did many surveys in multiple countries. And, and the evidence is pretty clear. Gardening, you know, definitely makes people happier. People who garden are happier than people who don't garden. The more time you spend gardening, especially if it's a hobby, if it's different, if you're a gardener, if it's your profession, but if it's a hobby, um, you, you genuinely get um, happier. And, and same with cooking. It, it's a bit counterintuitive because people have to cook for themselves and it's a pain and it's a chore. But the people who are enthusiastic, the people who have good tools and really enjoy it, then 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 that actually brings them uh, a sense of happiness. And it's a mixture of a sense of purpose. So kind of what what you're doing has a, has a point to it. But it's also the the sort of pleasure of, of doing those things, the sensory pleasure. So pleasure plus purpose seems to be the, the magic combo. Um, why why these things are are so so happiness inducing and, and if you think about gardening you know being around those flowers or sifting through flour in a in a um, kitchen or sit with your hands or, or cutting out a flower for a card for a, you know a Mother's Day card they're all sensory pleasures but they all have a sense of of purpose you're not just doing it for the pleasure um, if you're just doing stuff for pleasure you're a hedonist. If you're just doing stuff for a purpose, uh, you're probably worthy, but not necessarily happy. So again, it's that magic magic combination that we call the 100% happiness concept, and we'll be growing that. That's going to be a long-term, that's kind of our priceless campaign. That's something that we've just started a year ago, and we're just trying to find the right ways to communicate it. And um, and I've actually moved on to another part of the business, but but... The Fiskars team are still highly committed to to that idea of selling the emotional value of gardening and cooking and creating, and not just the functional benefits of the tool. And I think that's really interesting. the The thing of we have so much data and so much, so many numbers and things in the world now, but distilling it all down to get a truth 
that we kind of we can build from. So a real insight into people's lives that we can then build strategy from, and I think is a really interesting kind of approach. Totally agree. Yeah, it's um, we we have a lot of data, but our data is based on surveys. We don't have digital tools really at Fiscars, so we don't get the same kind of data that Rovio got. But um, but we do survey all the time, and we're always talking to the consumers. And it's just very clear that the more people enjoy it, the more also they'll spend on their tools, and the more they want quality tools, not just the cheap tools. You know, so if you're a reluctant gardener, you'll maybe buy any old tool. But if you're really passionate about it you'll buy the best tool. So what we want is for people to see, well, that happiness that 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 person's getting out of gardening must be related also to the fact that their tools are so much more ergonomic, so much better, so much easier to use. So it kind of connects it to that, to the point that we even had the 100% happiness guarantee in uh, in stores this year. So so basically you buy a product and if you don't, if it doesn't make you happy, <laughs> then after 30 days, you, you can send it back, no questions asked. Because um, we, we do make amazing tools. So it's it's very, in a way, easy for us to kind of commit to that kind of uh, happiness guarantee. Excellent. Okay. And then has that followed you into your new role, that kind of approach? You, you touched on it very briefly. I mean, it's very new, the new role. We only started just before summer and um, we're just sort of looking at the different brands now. And each brand has a different problem to solve. But even something like Waterford Crystal, you know, beautiful crystal glassware, um, handmade, crafted in Ireland. Um, but generally, people think of that as something that's in grand, grandma's closet, you know, in her um, cupboard. So it's about how do you make that connect to younger demographics, people in their sort of 30s and 40s who uh, sort of disconnected from from something like crystal glassware. And again, it's about finding the emotional sensory value of that um, rather than trying to just talk about the, the history or the 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 material it's it's got to be something more than that so we're, we're working on that now we've we're getting there we think you know for example that waterford is is um it's 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 a heavy expensive product but it but it it's again that space that people need in people's lives to, to have a glass of whiskey on a Friday in front of the fire or something. That's a really sensory, intentional moment that that you're selling an experience more than a, um, a physical product. So that's the way we're heading with that. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of good stuff coming, I would say. But those other brands, they you know they're going to take a bit of time to to crack because there's eight or nine of them. <laughs> okay, so it's going to keep you busy. But, yeah. but in the meantime, there's a question that I ask everyone, which I've had lots of different interesting answers for, but it's quite an open-ended question. And it's just simply, what are you curious about now? Right now, one of the biggest curiosities for us is that Asia and China and Japan are really important markets for us. Japan is actually the biggest market for Wedgwood, bigger than the UK and US, amazingly. China is a, such a massive, massive opportunity for our brands. Um, and so the curiosity comes from how much of the brands that we understand in Europe or US, how much of that translates to China and Asia um, and Japan and what parts need to be adjusted and how, how consistent can we keep it versus how uh, local should we should we have it and that's a that's a new experience for me i've not really marketed much in asia so it's it's a whole new new world for me 
Um, but the scale is just so massive. We, we're working with a celebrity in China, um, and the first posts he did for Wedgwood had 350,000 comments. Comments? Comments, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, it's, it's just very hard to imagine the scale um, of, you know, a well-known celebrity in, in in China. So, you know, that's an insane number of comments. So you can really change the, the business, change the scale of, of the business if, if some of our brands become... Uh, known there but that but what they know of British brands for example for Wedgwood is you know potentially quite cliche um, so what would be considered cliche and in, in England is is maybe exactly what they want in China so that's the challenge is how do you refresh the brand in the UK while still uh, making the brand interesting to um, countries where where they haven't really uh, had the the historical um, grandma relationship with uh, with the brand um, so it's it's a really interesting branding challenge. Right. So it's that it's that starting out on the branding journey with premium products versus changing the perception of something with lots of history before it. Yeah, and in a way, doing those simultaneously, which is the the challenge, right? Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think that's that's a really interesting kind of journey through through what you're doing. And what you've been doing. Um, it's great to hear that you've done the language test and you've got the citizenship and all those sort of things. And then to hear what you're kind of up to at in your current role is really, really good as well. So Dan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for talking to me and for letting me record our conversation. I really appreciate it. No problem. Great to chat to you. Thanks, Nick. Okay. So for everyone else, I think Dan is another great example of a Nordic future maker, someone who's pushing the boundaries of marketing and advertising for a range of brands at a global Finnish company. It's been really nice to hear his thoughts on everything, and I've really appreciated the time you've been given today. So I hope you have enjoyed the podcast. I hope you will subscribe to the podcast, and I hope you will listen again in the future. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Cheers.